Well, good morning, and welcome to the Oaks. My name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Uh, you can go ahead and find Psalm 61 if you have a copy of God's Word. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love nothing more than to be able to gift one of those to you. So uh, before you head out this afternoon, please grab one of those Bibles from the table in the back. That is our gift to you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word right in front of you, that's all right. It will also be on the screen behind me in the back. Now, as you turn to Psalm 61, I want to ask you a question. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? What do you do whenever you feel overwhelmed? You see, this past week, I read an article that documented some of life's major events. And typically, with each of these events comes an amount of stress. Some of these events are moments in life that you would describe as suffering. Others are difficult because they bring about change. But what we know is that as humans, we are often overwhelmed. And these aren't hypothetical situations, scenarios that I'll describe. Many of you have experienced these in the past year for sure, maybe in the past month, maybe even in, in the past week. It could be a significant change in a relationship, and that is for the good or for the difficult. It could be that you, you've started dating someone seriously, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, things might really change here in the coming months or year. Maybe you're newly married and you're trying to figure out how to, how to live with another person that's different from you and yet you love unconditionally. Uh, that significant change in a relationship can also be difficult. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a breakup that, that kind of leaves you wondering, what's, what's next? Where do I go from here? For parents, the significant change in life that uh, could bring about kind of this overwhelming feeling of stress might be a newborn. You're like, hey, like, uh, we, we should have been sent home with some sort of training manual, and now we're just, you know, got to figure this out. And then what you realize is that they grow up, and then you're kind of figuring out how to, how to navigate them, making friends at school. Eventually, they're going to go off to college, and that's another thing that you feel as a parent. Throughout your whole life, you're concerned with the life of your child. You feel that as a parent. Maybe it's work-related. How many of us deal with work-related stress? And, and sometimes it's the loss of a job that's unexpected. Maybe it's the change of a job. Maybe it's a new job or new responsibilities at your job. And you come home after working 60 hours whenever your job description says 40, and you're overwhelmed. You're stressed out. Some of you might be sitting here, and you say, you know what? I'm overwhelmed by disappointment. I feel like God has given me a, a good desire for a spouse, but my singleness is prolonged. A good desire for a child, and yet we're struggling with infertility. There's some sort of disappointment in your life that you find yourself wrestling with. You don't know why. You don't have the words to explain it, but you just know it hurts. Sometimes it's, it's a financial commitment. It could be a mortgage. It could be student loans. But at the end of the day, whenever you look at that number, and what you still owe, it can just kind of be overwhelming. Add to that the fact that our bodies are frail. Sometimes you, you have an unexpected injury. Maybe you need a procedure that you didn't foresee coming. Maybe you just kind of have this, this chronic illness that goes undetected by a lot of people around you, but you daily struggle with it. 
Maybe it makes it hard to get out of bed. And that can be overwhelming. Sometimes the stress we feel is because we care so much about the people around us. Right? So, so it's not even what's personally causing us pain, but the fact that we're watching someone we dearly love go through something difficult. The pain of an illness, or even the fact that we often lose ones we love. Like I said before, these aren't hypothetical stressors. These are, these are not just some things on a list in an article somewhere that I found this week. I say that as your pastor, who has had both, had both the privilege and, and the pain of walking through these things with you. As someone who, as a fellow traveler on this road to heaven, has experienced these things myself. Add to all of this the fact that any one of us could experience one of the things that I just named this week and not even know it, this month and not even know it, this year and not even know it. Is there any wonder why we are so stressed out? No, not at all. To provide just some, some statistics, some data that kind of sheds light on what I just explained, the National Institute of Mental Health would say that roughly 40 million Americans suffer from some sort of anxiety disorder. 19 million Americans are diagnosed with clinical depression. And maybe you're wondering, okay, well, how would that be different in the church? Like, like certainly things would be different for people that, you know, trust God and they know that God is sovereign and that Jesus is the king who is seated upon the throne. And yet data shows that 25% of Christians will experience a severe case of depression in their lives. And since 100% of Christians go through the life events that I just described, here is what you can know for certain. You will face difficulty. The question is not, what will you do if you find yourself overwhelmed? The question is, what will you do when you find yourself overwhelmed? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Where do you go when you feel lost and don't know where to go? What do you say whenever you feel like you are at a loss for words? In God's grace and in God's providence, Psalm 61 provides a way forward, a path forward, a path that leads straight to the throne room of God for the weary traveler. And in this Psalm of David, what we will find is that those moments in our life that feel so overwhelming, whenever we spiritually feel like we are out at sea and our legs are too weak to tread water, what we find is that our suffering is an invitation to admit our fragile dependence upon God and to experience and to enjoy His all-sufficiency as our rock and our refuge. You find that in Psalm 61. Look with me at Psalm 61, verses 1 through 8. This is a psalm of David. We read here in the superscription that this was to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. In verse 1, we hear his prayer. He says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. 
Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Let's pray. Lord, you are our rock and there is no other. Lord, would you, would you comfort us now? God, I, I recognize that those that sit before me come from different backgrounds or experiencing different life circumstances, and yet we all need this word, be it some difficulty, some temptation to sin that we are wrestling with, or uh, be it the, the pain of a loved one, or what we ourselves are going through, we recognize that we need to be led to the rock that is higher than us. And if we are not led to you, we will perish. So Lord, hear our cry, listen to our prayer, for you have always been our tower of refuge against the enemy. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If we were sitting across from each other grabbing coffee and I was to look at Psalm 61 with you, This is what I would want you to know. I would want you to know that when you are overwhelmed by the uncertainty and instability of life's circumstances, you must seek the Lord as your rock and your refuge. And as I was working on this sermon this week, the way that I wrote the second part of that phrase the first time was, you can seek the Lord as your rock and your refuge. But I didn't want to leave you with an option because there isn't one. When you are overwhelmed by the uncertainty and instability of life's circumstances, you must seek the Lord as your rock and your refuge. Now, as I said before, this is a psalm of David. We know that because the superscription right above the psalm, as Kyle mentioned a couple weeks ago, is also inspired. And so we know that this is a psalm that was written by David. And while David was the author of this psalm, we know that psalms were meant to be sung by the entire congregation. These are instructive words. They are designed for all of God's people to sing, both for Israel and for you. Now, scholars speculate about the exact circumstance that David is writing this psalm in. Some believe that it's whenever he was running from King Saul for his life. Or some believe that it was was when he was running from his son, Absalom. Uh, Now, I think there are clues in this text to point us to believe that this is whenever he was running from his son, Absalom. But we know either way, his life is in jeopardy. The throne is in jeopardy. And I think that the exact details of this psalm might not be known to us for our benefit. Perhaps the ambiguity helps us here. Because how many of us can relate to being thrust from the palace into the wilderness? Do we really know what it's like to go from ruler of a kingdom to refugee in a week's time? No. But if you are a Christian, even if you are unfamiliar with Psalm 61, I imagine that the words of Psalm 61 have flowed from your lips at some point in your life. 
that even if this is the first time you've read this psalm, if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, Psalm 61 has this sense of familiarity to it. Because this is the cry of every Christian that is overwhelmed. And for that reason, the structure of this sermon is simply four ways that a Christian handles a crisis. David is going to take us along this journey and, to, and show us four ways that a Christian handles a crisis. The first is that we cry out to God when we are overwhelmed by life's circumstances. What must you do? You must cry out to God when you are overwhelmed by life's circumstances. We see that in verses 1 through 3. David begins by saying, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. In verses 1 through 3, David is going to make two requests, and then they are going to lead him to a grateful reflection of God's past faithfulness in his life. Here David begins requesting that the Lord would hear his prayer. Do you hear David's desperation as he pens this psalm? It seems he's at the end of his rope. He's losing his grip. He's crying out to God whenever he is faced with the uncertainty and overwhelming circumstances of life. David here models for us what we often say at the Oaks, that prayer is our first response and not our last resort. And perhaps some of you would look at verse 1 and just say, this isn't me. I wouldn't do this. I don't do this. Maybe you look at, at verse 1 and you would say, oh, David, don't be so dramatic. Listen to my cry. Hear my cry, oh God, listen to my prayer. Oh, David, don't, don't be so dramatic, right? Maybe you would uh, agree with Ron Swanson who says that every person's tears should just remain in their eyes where they belong. But David's not being dramatic. He's being desperate here as he cries out to God. You see, whenever we read the Psalms, we become more familiar with kind of the singer-songwriter side of David, don't we? He's crying out. He's writing poems. But let's not forget that David had a reputation for being tough. He was, he was no wimp. Whenever he was a young shepherd boy to protect his flock, he went toe-to-toe with a lion and a bear and emerged victorious. Now, I don't know about you, but I've gone to the zoo with my kids, and I've stood in front of those exhibits. And if that glass was to disappear for a moment, I'm not trying to defend my honor, right? I'm running in the other direction because I know exactly what a bear or a lion could do to me. And yet David only grew in his strength as a warrior king over time. He was no stranger to running into battle, a fierce battle with a sword strapped to his thigh. And yet what do we find here? that that reputation seems to fade when his heart is faint. May David serve as a picture to us that no man, no person is sufficient within themselves. And I think this leads us to an important truth worth noting. Perhaps it might be a comfort to you. That crying out to God in this way, crying out to God is not a moment of spiritual weakness. It's an act of worship. Crying out to God is not a moment of spiritual weakness. It's an act of worship, recognizing the God who is worthy to be cried out to. Brother, sister, let me 
urge you to cry out to God in your moment of distress. It's simple, yes, but it's essential. And I say that because I believe that one of the biggest threats to your communion with God, one of the biggest threats to an intimate personal relationship with God is a subtle pride that results in self-reliance. I can figure this out. I'll just change a couple of things. I need to work on my schedule. I just, need to, I just need to, you know, begin some new rhythms that are a little bit more helpful for me or maybe not, not talk to that person. I, I got this, I got this, I got this. There's a, there is a subtle pride that can creep into your Christian life that will stifle intimate communion with God, and it's a sin of self-reliance. And self-reliance is most easily made evident through a lack of prayer. I want you to know, I I feel this too. I feel the weight of this. I, I mean, how quick am I to try to strategize instead of just falling on my face before God? Your your cry to the Lord might not always be as intense as David's, but here's what we know. Spiritual health and maturity is seen by heart, by a Christian that cries out to God in the midst of crisis. Let me make a similar comparison. Many of you guys work in labor and delivery, so you're more familiar with this than I am. Uh, But whenever a newborn child is first born, the nurses, the doctors, they'll, they'll take this child and they will evaluate them through something that's called an APGAR test. And whenever they do this, uh, they provide some sort of stimulus that is uncomfortable to the child, so maybe a warm towel on the back. Now, that child, their reflexes, their health, their respiratory system is all, you know, seen as healthy if that child responds by crying, by the, the reflexes, you know, just kind of wincing, grimacing. And if the child is to stay silent, and to not move at all whenever it experiences distress, they'd say, there is something terribly wrong with this child. I see a couple of head nods, so thank you, uh, doctors in the room. <laughs> in the same way for the Christian to experience distress and to, dis- and, and to experience discomfort and to not immediately cry out to God, say, something's not right here. This is a sign of spiritual unhealth, but whenever we experience discomfort and distress and our first response is to cry out to God, what we find even in the midst of suffering is that the Lord is at work within us, and that should be a great comfort. And so through this God-breathed song of Scripture, we are invited to cry out to the God in humility. And He hears our cry. He listens to our prayer. I think it's also helpful here to note that David's struggle isn't the result of sin. Maybe some of you are experiencing suffering right now, and you're trying to figure out, like, okay, like, is this because I didn't read my Bible enough last week? Is this because, you know, I didn't, like, give to uh, that, you know, missions organization that was raising money? Like, you're, tr- you're trying to figure out, like where, like, where did I go wrong that somehow, like, the repercussion of that was this suffering? But suffering isn't always the result of sin. We saw Psalm 51 that Kyle preached a couple weeks ago, and David's suffering, the way that he felt was the result of his sin, his, his neglect of God, his adultery, and his murder. But here, we see that David is simply facing the suffering that exists in a fallen world, and you will too. So it's helpful here that we see that David cries out to God in the midst of his suffering, and sometimes it needs to be a cry of repentance over sin, and other times it just simply needs to be a cry of dependence 
because we live in a broken world where we feel the effects of sin. In verse 2, David sheds a little bit of light on his situation. He prays at the end of the earth, as it were. He says, from the end of the earth, I call to you. Now, I, I believe that David here is both giving us a geographical descriptor and a spiritual descriptor. You see, the end of the earth for a Jew would have been anywhere far from Jerusalem, and we know that he is somewhere on the run in the wilderness, right? So, so he's missing the, the worship that he had with the people. He wants to be in the holy city where the presence of God was made known through practices and through God's people. But, but he also likely feels far from God here. He says that his heart is faint. Because he refers to the kingship in verse 6, we can likely assume that this is whenever he was running from his own son, Absalom. Now, get a picture of where David was at in his life right now. He was probably around 60 years of age, maybe a little bit more frail than he was in his youth. And not only that, his throne is in jeopardy, but it's, it's in jeopardy because his own son has orchestrated a rebellion, not only to seize the throne, but to put an end to his life. Can you imagine going through that with a child that you raised with your own hands? It's no wonder here that he says, my heart is faint. Some of you might have the word overwhelmed in your translation of Scripture. Uh, the word that is used there is literally covered over. It's almost as, as, as his heart is being submerged, if it's drowning and can barely come up for air. It's like it's being buried alive. He says, my heart is faint within me. And can you imagine how he felt, the humiliation, the fear, the grief, the heartbreak that he was experiencing? Of course you can. Of course you can. Because you felt it too. Perhaps some of you feel it now. You're worried about the health of a loved one and you visit them in the ICU and they're surrounded with beeping machines and they've got an oxygen mask on and your heart, your heart feels faint, like it's, it's being submerged. Some of you, you just heard that there was another round of layoffs at work and you're hoping that it's not you next. Others of you, you feel like God has called you into a ministry or an area, area of service and you're excited about it, but at the same time, you feel like it's just too great for you, too much for you to handle. And it makes you nervous. You feel overwhelmed. Maybe even your heart feels faint. But there's a word for those here who feel like they're at the end of the earth. When you find yourself at the end of the earth, cry out to the God who sits enthroned above it. When you find your heart faint, feeling like you are at the end of the earth, cry out to the God who sits enthroned above it. And that's why David continues this prayer, saying, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Whenever it came time to choose a psalm, there were a number of reasons that I picked this one, but one of the reasons is that I have prayed this prayer, this phrase, hundreds of times. To say thousands might be an exaggeration, but I can't tell you how many times, just in a brief breath prayer, said, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Because I've felt like David felt here, and, and maybe you do too. 
I mean, the imagery is strong in this psalm. He's saying, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The way that he just used the word for a fainting heart is almost as if it's drowning. I mean, feel the metaphor here. It's, it's like he's saying, my strength is depleted. I can't tread water anymore. And with every crashing wave, the salt is stinging my eyes. And God, if you don't lead me to the rock that is higher than I, I will die. It's not dramatic, it's desperate. It's the cry of a Christian in the moment of crisis. He's saying, lead me to the rock that is higher than I because my heart is faint. The literal translation here is the rock that is too high for me. That's important. Lead me to the rock that is too high for me. Recognize that he was the king. Is there any position for a man to hold that is higher than being the king over an entire kingdom? And yet in humility, recognizing his position is low before God, saying, lead me to the rock that is too high for I. I am asking for something. David is saying, I am asking for something that I cannot attain in myself. And if I am to be led to the rock that is higher than I, if I'm to find any stable footing that I may not drown, you will have to carry me there. Like a shepherd carries a wounded, exhausted sheep to a place of rest and comfort. Unless the Lord carries us to the rock that is higher than us we will surely perish. This rock that he is seeking is the rock of salvation. It's a nearness of the presence of God. It's, it's an experience of the presence of God that produces peace that surpasses all understanding. Rest for a weary soul. The assurance of forgiveness for those that are struggling with temptation and sin it is the rock that is higher than we are, and it can only be found in God. And after David makes these two requests that his prayer would be heard and that God would lead him, he reflects on God's past faithfulness. Do you see that in verse 3? Verse 1, petition, hear my cry. Verse 2, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Verse 3, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against my enemy. We often say at the Oaks that God's past faithfulness is the greatest indicator of his future faithfulness. And in your moments of distress, Remind yourselves of all of the times that God has been faithful to you. Remind yourselves of God's past faithfulness. There's a reason that he can say here, you have been my refuge. Whenever you do this, whenever you are reminded of God's past faithfulness, it's almost like putting anchors in to the face of a mountain wall. If, if you've ever seen, I know many of you are rock climbers, but if you've ever seen a climber go up an uncharted wall, where, where no one's gone, no one's set anchors, no one's drilled any holes, then, then as they're going up, you'll see that they're, they're drilling holes or they're using these things called pitons where they're hammering them into the rock. And what they are doing with each kind of checkpoint that they climb, every you know, five to 10 feet that they make it, what they're saying is, I'm going to put an anchor right here so that if my foot slips, I don't fall further than where I've been before. What, what doubts what fears, what struggles, what sin, what suffering could cause your foot to slip? And at the same time, how has God's past faithfulness driven anchors 
for your soul into the character of God so that when your foot slips, you will say, I will not fall further than my past experience of God's faithfulness, but I will be held fast to the rock who is Christ. And here are a series of questions because we easily forget the answers to the prayers we once prayed with tears. I do. Christian, in what trials has God supplied peace? What need have you asked for that God has provided? What hurt has God healed? What sin has God forgiven? What prayers have been answered? What fears have been calmed? You see, our perspective changes from the top of this rock that is higher than ourselves. And if you jotted any answers down to the questions that I just gave you, perhaps you would want to encourage a friend by sharing that with them today. I've cried out to God in my distress, and He has heard my prayer. The second way that a Christian handles a crisis is we seek God's presence when problems arise. Look at verses 4 through 5. David says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. The second way that a Christian handles crisis is they seek God's presence when problems arise. Verses 4 through 5 follow the same exact pattern in verses 1 through 3. There are two requests. And then there is this recollection of God's past faithfulness. The first request that David makes is that he would dwell in the tent of the Lord forever. Now, what tent is he referring to? Let's use some of our Old Testament background here. He's not referring to any tent. He's referring to the tabernacle. You might remember in the Exodus that whenever God led his people out of the oppression of the Egyptians, whenever they come out of captivity and they're making their way toward the promised land, When they were in the wilderness, God instructed Moses to have the people construct a tabernacle, a tent of meeting where they would worship, and it would be a constant sign and symbol of the presence of God in the midst of the people. And so David, as he's on the run, undoubtedly is missing that tabernacle that that finally made its way into the promised land, that was there in the city of Jerusalem. He missed singing songs of worship. He missed being in the courtyard and offering sacrifices of praise and watching the priest go in to the tabernacle tent. He missed that. But I think he's asking for even a greater access than what he had before, because he's saying, let me dwell in your tent forever. And you might also know that David, as a king, not a priest, would not have been allowed into the tent. He, being from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, would not have been a priest able to go in and offer those sacrifices, certainly not able to go into the Holy of Holies as only the high priest was able to do once a year on the Day of Atonement. And yet he's saying, let me dwell in your tent forever. God, let me experience your presence in, in a way that, that is everlasting. And I think this here will point to the fact that we now have a greater access than what David longed for. Follow with me as he says, shelter me under your wings. Now, this is a metaphor that he is using. 
As I've said, Psalm 61 has so much imagery in it, and uh, certainly this is referencing to the way that a, a mother bird would, would stretch her wings over a young chick and provide shelter even in the fragility of a bird's nest. Right? God doesn't have wings, and yet we see that all of creation is this well-curated gallery that points to the glory of God in every aspect of what our eyes behold. Everything exists to point to God. But I think David is doing something else here too, because he just alluded to the tabernacle, and here he is bringing up this imagery of wings. Now, where were wings present in the tabernacle? Well, you might know that the back third of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies there was the Ark of the Covenant. The top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled, was called the mercy seat, and that's where, that's where atonement, forgiveness happened for the people of Israel. And above that Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim, these two angels that had wings overstretched, touching one another. And right under that was the mercy seat. And each year, whenever the high priest entered into the tabernacle and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice upon that mercy seat, it offered forgiveness for the guilty. It offered unhindered relationship between a sinful people and a holy God. And David here is saying, shelter me under your wings forever. Give me this unhindered relationship. Assure me of the walk that I have with you that could come only from the atonement that you offer by your grace and your mercy. It is undeserved but much desired. And what do we see in verse 5? He says, you have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear you. You've given me this relationship. You've given me all that I've ever needed. He recalls God's past faithfulness. In verse 1, he's asking that God would hear him. And in verse 5, he's saying, you've heard my vows, the vows I made as a king, the vows that I've made as a man of God, and every prayer that I've prayed, you hear. And as David sought the presence of God, we realize that we have a greater experience of the presence of God than even David had. He longed to be near the tent of God, in the tent of God, and what we realize is that Christ went in and made atonement for us. Christ is our great high priest. We are sheltered under the wings of Christ because it is He who secured our redemption through the shedding of His own blood. The author, the author of Hebrews makes this connection in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, saying, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not just the tabernacle, the tent of his body, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christian, you can seek God's presence and experience God's presence because you know Christ. Because Christ's blood was shed for you, you can be sheltered under his wings. You have unhindered access to God. Please take full advantage of this gift. Maybe you're, you're here and you're thinking, okay, that's great, but it kind of sounds abstract. How do I actually seek the presence of God? I want to give you three facts. First, know that God speaks. Second, know that God hears. And third, know that God indwells. How do you seek God's presence? God speaks. Do you know that the inspired word of Scripture that you hold in your hand is God speaking to you? 
that the same voice that called into the tomb of Lazarus to make him live now speaks to you through the pages you hold in your hand? Doesn't that make you want to wake up a little bit earlier in the morning and dig into the book of John? Doesn't that make you want to take that scripture card and put it somewhere that you're going to see it? Doesn't that make you want to to meditate on God's word during your lunch break? To know that God speaks? Second, God hears. That's what this entire sermon is about. God hears your prayers. Long prayers, short prayers, spontaneous prayers, prayers through a psalm, prayers alone, prayers with a friend, that God hears your cries. Be it a formal prayer, a spontaneous prayer, a prayer of desperation or a prayer of praise. God hears. And third, He indwells His people. See, the presence of God can be experienced through the people of God because the Holy Spirit indwells each person who is called upon the name of Christ. So whenever we gather together, we experience the truth that God is Emmanuel, God with us. Whenever we sing songs of praise and whenever we pray prayers together and when we serve one another, when we sit under God's word and its preaching, whenever we greet one another in the hallways, whenever we take the Lord's Supper together around His table, we are experiencing the presence of God. It should not surprise you that you would feel distant from God if you neglect the gathering of God's people. Because here we experience the presence of God. But it's not just in this context. It's through conversations throughout the week. It's through meeting the needs of one another. It's through sharing your own suffering with another that someone else could place their hand upon you and pray for you. It is through the Christian community, God indwelling his people, that we actively seek the presence of God. So seek the presence of the God who hears, who speaks, and who indwells his people. The third way that the Christian handles a crisis is to rest under God's rule. Now, verse 6 marks a shift in this passage because David now is praying that God would prolong the life of the king. Now, you might wonder, is it kind of self-serving here that David is writing a song for everybody to sing that is specifically about preserving his life? Uh, I would say no, because if you're going through the Oaks Bible reading plan and you're reading through this section of Kings and Chronicles, one thing has been made clear that the way of the king often determines the well-being of the people. So a good king, a godly king, means, means a good life in the kingdom. And so David here is praying that God would prolong his life, not just for his own well-being as he is out on the run, but also for the good of the people. Now, there's one more thing to note here. David is, is speaking of the king in third person. Now, why would he do that? Well, surely, I mean, he probably has himself in mind, but I think he is praying about the kingship as a whole. I think he's praying about the longevity of his throne. And the reason that I would say that is because I believe that he is praying God's promises back to him. And ultimately, he is not asking for the preservation of his own reign, but he is resting under the rule of God. I say that because in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, God promised David that there would be one from his line who would have an everlasting reign, and of his kingdom there would be no end. Now David is on the run, praying those promises back to God, and what we find in Scripture is that Christ himself is the answer to David's prayers. Look at verses 6 through 7. It is Christ who rules and endures to all generations. It is Christ who is enthroned forever before the face of God. It is Christ who rules with steadfast love 
and faithfulness. Here we see that Christ is the fulfillment of David's prayer and these promises of God. But for the people of God, this promise of a coming Messiah would take great faith because the days were dark after David, if you remember the Old Testament. The Babylonians would come. They would conquer. They would take captive. The temple would be destroyed that Solomon built after the tabernacle was replaced. Things were dark for the people of Israel. And the dynasty that was promised to David seemed like a dream that would never come true. But God brought his people back and they rebuilt the temple. And within that temple, they sang Psalm 61 again. And one day, in a small manger in the town of Bethlehem, a child is born, but not just a child, the Son of God, the King of kings, the King who would come from the line of Judah, who would rule over all kingdoms of the earth. His kingdom would have no end, and he would have an everlasting reign. And one of his very first messages would be, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand, and that was because the king who sat on David's throne was the very son of God who had entered into history. So for you, you can rest in the rule of God. The resurrected rule of Christ should be a comfort in your distress. For your salvation, this great king wore a crown of thorns and died the death that you deserved, but now he is risen and reigning, and within his nail-scarred hands he hold a scepter that could never be snatched from it. May God's sovereignty provide stability as you stand on the rock that is higher than yourself. May this Lord's everlasting love made known through his death and resurrection offer you great comfort in your distress. If Christ has given his life for you, is there anything that you think he would withhold? You can trust that his rule is kind and good. I don't want to say that in a trite way. I'm not saying that to belittle your suffering. I'm saying it so that we would rightly view the God who reigns over it all. And here I believe we find an unforeseen blessing within our suffering. You see, our suffering has a way of exposing the insufficiency of our idols. Have you ever noticed that? Comfort food leaves us hungry again. The thing that we purchased with a little retail therapy whenever we were down, we soon become disinterested with. People that we put our trust in, they often let us down. And typically that's not even because they are bad people, but just because the expectations that we put on them are too great for any person to live up to. Entertainment can't distract us long enough. In the midst of our suffering, one of the ways that God refines us is by exposing the insufficiency of our idols. And at the same time, he reveals his all-sufficiency to us. And that we could submit to his reign, that we could rest under it and know that he is good. We become like Job who says in Job 42, 5, my, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. The fourth way that a Christian handles crisis is to resolve to worship. Often whenever I'm working through a passage like this, uh, I'll, just, I'll just write it down in my own words, uh, just kind of going verse by verse to try to like meditate on it a little bit more. And in verse 8, we read that David says, So I will ever sing your praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. And here, just, just thinking through that, I thought, David is saying, my confidence will be audible. My confidence in you will be audible before others. 
my confidence will be visible. And my confidence is in you because, God, I believe you are who you say you are. Here, David is saying, I'm going to fulfill my vows. I'm going to sing praises to God day after day. It's almost as if we can sense his confidence here. Does David's disposition seem to change by the end of this psalm? He was crying out at the beginning, and now he's saying, day to day, I'm going to keep my vows. I'm going to sing your praises. Maybe you even feel a little lighter as we get to the end of this psalm, as you have had the opportunity to behold the God who is worthy of our worship. You see, his faith in God here is expressed through just simple obedience. It seems ordinary, doesn't it? I mean, maybe it seems too simple to you. It's not, it's not very flashy. Honestly, it, it doesn't take that much understanding to, to grasp this, and maybe that's why we would just glance over it. Statistically, most of us won't be martyrs. We won't have these grand gestures of making our faith radically known to the world around us. Now, most of us will pray, verse 8, and it will look like choosing to die to ourselves every day. Whenever we say, you know what, I'm hurting, but I'm still going to ask how I can pray for someone else because God's called me to love my neighbor. And you know what, I'm tired, but I'm going to be the husband, the father, the mother, the wife that I'm called to be today because I care about my children and their walk with the Lord and their view of Him. It's, it's difficult to serve at times when you're going through suffering, and yet there's still rejoicing to be had whenever you see that God can use someone with difficulty to make His presence known to others. We worship because He is worthy. And we should be mindful of this because I think that when we sin opportunities, or when we suffer, opportunities to sin abound, don't they? Right, so if you don't cry out to God, you know what you'll do? You'll grumble and you'll complain, maybe even grow bitter to Him in your suffering. The outbursts of anger or maybe gossip about someone else that you're trying to shift the blame to or even distancing yourself from other people might offer a false sense of relief in the moment. But we need to stop fooling ourselves. You see, I think one of the reasons that sin is so appealing in our suffering is because it offers this deceptive sense of feeling like we are still in control. Because it's like, well, you know, I, don't, I don't know how to do anything else, but, you know, I, I mean, I can, I can control this. That's why sometimes whenever things get hard at, at work and you feel like you, things are up in the air, then you, you come down really hard on the other people around you, you begin to demand too much. But instead, in our suffering, we cry out to God, we seek His presence, we rest under His rule and we resolve to worship. You see, about 11 miles off of the coast of Angus, Scotland, is this lighthouse. This lighthouse is described as one of the seven industrial wonders of the world. Now, what makes this lighthouse so unique is that it is 11 miles off the coast. It's in the middle of the North Sea. To add to the uniqueness of this lighthouse is that roughly 20 hours a day, the base of this lighthouse is completely submerged underwater. Only four hours a day is this base not submerged. And for 220 years, this 115-foot-tall lighthouse has withstood wave and wind and storm. Now, how could that be? Because this lighthouse is built upon a rock. You see, the, the lighthouse, while it is 11 miles off of the coast of Angus, Scotland, 
is built upon a rock that is firmly anchored to the floor of the North Sea. And the way that it has been able to withstand centuries of storms that has come against it is not just because of the structural design, but because it is anchored to a rock that is greater than it is. And its preservation has come from the foundation underneath it, which is the rock. It is firmly fixed to a rock that cannot be moved. And the illusion here is obvious, is it not? As Jesus spoke in Matthew 7, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, He tells us to build our lives upon the rock so that when the wind, the wave, and the storms come, we will not be moved. It is David here who is teaching us to pray that God would lead us to the rock that is higher than we are. And the New Testament makes it certain that Christ is the rock that we seek, that we not only ask to be led to the rock, but recognize the fact that this rock has come for us. You look through the pages of the New Testament and you see that it is Christ who was the rock in the wilderness as Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 10.4, that he was the rock that was struck that provides living water, which means the thirsty can come and have satisfaction in him. He is the cornerstone upon which the church was built when Jesus says, Lord, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I will build my church upon this rock, this proclamation that I am king over all creation and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which means the unstable sinner can come and find a sturdy foundation in him. He is the rock in Daniel 2 that conquers all other kingdoms and covers the entire earth, which means the fearful can find rest in the rule of this king who will reign for generations. He is the cleft of the rock that Moses was shielded in from God's unobstructed glory so that those who long to be known by the God who created them are known by Christ himself. You see, we can run to the rock who is Christ in our suffering because he first suffered for us that the rock who is Christ laid down his life for us so that sinners like you and me could be saved. That the rock, as it were, seemed to be crushed upon the cross, and yet three days later, he would rise victorious again. That this rock who is Christ is now ruling and reigning above all the earth so that we can find our rest living under his kind, good, and faithful rule. Now, we began with a question this morning. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? I think there are four responses. These follow the, the ways that I've described here. First, we just cry out to God, Lord, I need your help. For you who might be an unbeliever, this is an opportunity to say, I recognize I'm a sinner in need of grace, and you cry out to God for salvation. For others of you, I didn't specify here because I know that you can when you say, Lord, I need your help. Second, we say, Lord, I know that you speak, you hear, and you indwell your people. For some of you, that might be an invitation to listen because he speaks. For others, that might be an invitation to pray because he hears. And for others, it might be, I need to be baptized. I need to become a part of a church family. I need to be a part of a Christian community because he indwells his people, and I feel far from him. You say, Lord, I trust your rule, and I need grace to trust you more. Fourth and finally, Lord, I will worship you with the life that you have redeemed. What do we do when we feel overwhelmed? 
What do we do when we feel like we are at the end of the earth? We cry out to the God who sits enthroned above it. Let's pray.